You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the word of the Lord. Imagine that most of us can relate to the difficulty of buying a gift for someone who seems to have everything. Or the person who, when you're asking them, what would you like? They say, well, I I really don't need anything. We, We can relate to that. But can you relate to this? How do you pray for someone who really does have everything? Now, that might sound like an odd situation, like, well, that would never, ever happen. But in fact, that is what Paul is directly speaking to in Ephesians chapter 1 in this opening prayer in this letter. Uh, So I'd like you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. And in verses 15 through 23, we have the first of two specific prayers in this letter. Uh, You'll notice when we do get to Ephesians 3, that that prayer has a uniquely different tone than this prayer. Uh, But his opening prayer is, is all about how do you pray for those who do have everything? In other words, how do you pray for believers who in Christ do possess everything necessary for whatever need or situation you might face. And so as we come to this passage this morning, we're going to look at how Paul addresses this issue by how he answers two questions. The first question simply would be, why should we pray for one another? Now, we might quickly have the Sunday school answer, well, you know, God says, but but push beyond that. Why should we pray for one another? Especially since I've already sort of hinted at the fact we already have everything you need in Christ Jesus. The second question is then, how should we pray for one another? And let's look at how Paul seeks to answer those questions for a first century church and how that is so relevant to help us today in this same issue. So look at verse 15, if you would, and addressing this first question, why should we pray 
for one another as believers. He begins and says, for this reason. Some translations have therefore or wherefore. Uh, and right away that tells you, for this reason, he's referring to something he has previously said in this letter. So it doesn't take us long to look at this and say, Paul's pointing back to verses 3 through 14. Where, where he put all of the privileges of the believers right up front in the letter. The spiritual riches the, the, in heavenly places that you have in Christ Jesus. So because of all what he said about that, that state, that condition, now he's going to move to the fact that we should pray for one another. And one of the reasons is because we have a tendency as Christians to lose sight of who we are in Christ and what we have in Christ. We, we all have a tendency to lose sight of that in the midst of circumstances, daily responsibilities, uh, and the stresses and strains of life. And Paul would be no different. He tells us that, that he faces many concerns for, for these churches that he's planted uh, for the believers that he's able to come in and out of their lives on. So he's a man well acquainted with anxiety, fears, struggles, not enough time to get everything done. How do you balance all that? Well, we need to be praying for one another for this reason. But notice as you look at that, Paul's very clear why he gives thanks for these believers in Ephesus. And this is, permeates many of his letters where he speaks of he's giving thanks for those that are one with him in Christ. So you see in verse 15, he gives two very specific reasons why he is thankful. First, I have heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus. Now remember, Paul has left that church, um, been there about three years altogether, um, but he's about 10 years removed from the establishment of that church. But yet he speaks of how thankful he is that he has heard reports about their faith in the Lord. And that word faith is not some sort of blind, leap-in-the-dark sort of experience, but it means I've heard about your confidence, your, your certainty in Jesus Christ. And isn't that what we want to convey to a world that often sees faith as a very ambiguous sort of concept? Uh, almost the thought that to have faith in something means you have really no evidence, no support. It's just something you want to cling to naively. Richard Dawkins in his attacks upon Christians simply said, faith is ridiculous. He, he would consider any Christian as having faith, as being anti-intellectual, someone who does not have a in real touch with reality. That's not how scriptures speak of faith. Faith is this certainty, this confidence, and yes, what is many times unseen, but is definitely real. And so Paul says, I, I give thanks when I keep hearing about your faith in Christ. But out of that faith in Christ, you see, quickly leads into a second reason. And that is, I hear all about your love for all the saints. Now, you have to always stop and consider when Paul uses qualifying terms like all, every. 
It's not just that they love their friends in Christ. All of us, even the person who does not know Christ, probably loves their friends. They love those that they get along with, that they have some kind of common bond with. But for Paul to say, here's what I'm thankful for when I think of this group of believers. I'm thankful for your love for all the saints. It is always fun to sort of ask a group of Christians, how many of you would consider yourselves a saint? And we all sort of get this sense of, I don't want to go there. You know, I'm not going to put my hand up and be the only one. But you should, in Christ, consider yourself a saint. You, you have been set apart unto Christ. It doesn't mean you're sinless. None of us are. We, we still struggle with sin, which is one of the reasons why we, we need to come together for worship and teaching. But to think that the way Paul answers his first question, why should we pray for one another, is because we do have a tendency to lose sight of the confidence we should have in Christ, of the reality that we have been set apart in him, and we should demonstrate a love for one another in Christ. And I think it would be fair to say one of the strengths that we know that, that God has blessed our church with is a sense of, of love for one another. Uh, not only because of our size, but the reality is when someone's not here, we notice. And we're concerned about that. And we want to follow up in love to see how you're doing. So Paul is very thankful. In fact, one of the themes running through Ephesians is unity in the body of Christ. Paul wants them to know they are one in Christ. And so if we're one in Christ, that would make sense. We should pray for one another. But let's go on a little bit further in answering that first question, why should we pray for one another? We all stand in need of daily sanctifying grace. Keep in mind, this letter is to people primarily who already know Christ as Lord and Savior. So he's not telling them they need to be saved every day. They, they have been saved. They are in Christ. But you see in verse 16, he says, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. You could put it, constantly mentioning you in my prayers, repeatedly. Now, why would Paul repeatedly pray for people who already know who Jesus Christ is? Because he knows himself as a fellow believer. We all stand in need of God's daily sanctifying grace. That grace that is required for us to be shaped and molded into the image of Christ. For Paul, being out of sight is not being out of mind. He, he's not present with them, but he says, I haven't stopped thinking about you, praying about you. And so when we come to this question of well, why should we pray for one another, stop and ask yourself, between Sunday and Sunday, how often do you think about your brothers and sisters in Christ that you see sitting around you? How often do you pray for each other? And that may be a very quick prayer. It could be in the middle of the day. You're just thinking about someone. And you're like, I, yeah, I'm going to pray for them. I don't know what's going on. 
but I'm sure they need God's grace today. And they may be facing something. Uh, that should be our mentality if we understand this oneness, this unity that is ours in Christ. Flip over to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5, and this is clearly something that Paul conveys in a number of his letters, but you see it quite clearly here in 1 Thessalonians 5. So we're looking at this question, just why should we pray for one another? And rather than wanting to give some patent quick answer, it challenges us to think specifically, how would I answer that? How should I answer it? How, how, how would Paul, how does Paul answer it? Well, you notice in 1 Thessalonians 5, another church that Paul's writing to, a church that he also says to them, in essence, I, I keep hearing reports of the great work you're doing, your work motivated by love, sort of a very similar sort of praise and thanksgiving. But you notice in verse, verses 17 and 18, of 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul says this, giving thanks in all circumstances, or let me back up, I'll begin at verse 16. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now notice how he lumps those series of exhortations very tightly together, that we are to pray continually, giving thanks. The reason is, this is God's will for you. Often we take that concept of God's will and we make it into some big, mysterious sort of concept. You know, where, where we're thinking about, well, where am I going to live? Who will I marry? What will happen to my family? You know, what's going to happen here? And, and we forget that there's God's secret will, which we are never told that we will be given. But when it comes to God's revealed will, here's a very clearly revealed part of God's will. We should be praying for one another as Christians. That is so clear. You, you don't have to pray about it and say, well, I don't know if that is what I should do or not. Uh, you don't have to be thinking, I don't know if I'm good at that. If you are a believer, this is God's will for you. So Paul very clearly answers the first question in his prayer for the believers in Ephesus. Why should you pray? It's God's will for you. But that leads us to the bigger question, and that is how should we pray for one another? And so let's go back to Ephesians chapter 5 and see how Paul helps us understand that and hopefully apply it in our own in our own lives uh, because i'm sure all of us at times have struggled maybe with well i don't know how to pray for someone uh, yes we do have the holy spirit given to us to assist us in praying effectively uh, it does require some knowledge of one another but paul puts that out there and says if this is god's will then there's really no reason why we can't pray for one another so how should we pray? Well, Paul's perspective in this prayer is that every believer has everything that they will ever need in Christ Jesus. That, that there isn't such a thing as you, you sort of have some things and not others. That there's a complete package when we are in Christ. 
which doesn't lead us to say, well, then why pray? Because we're complete in Christ, but we're motivated then in how we pray. In other words, there's a very big difference between how you pray for someone who does not know Christ and how you pray for a brother or sister in Christ who is a fellow believer. And I think that's why often when hopefully you hear someone say, well, could you pray for such and such? One of the first questions you should have is, well, I really need to know, do we know if, they're, uh, do we know if they know Christ or not? Because that's going to affect how you pray. So let's look closely here at how Paul says, I'm praying for you, which opens a window for how we should pray for our fellow believers. Look at verses 17 and 18. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And I'm, I'm going to break right at that point because as you look at Paul's prayer, there's a couple different ways you could break this prayer down. One could be that maybe there's a series of requests that Paul has because he does go on and then he, he lists some things. That's one approach. I'm going to argue that maybe we should understand this prayer from a different approach. And that is Paul has one major arcing specific request. That one request is broken down then into different areas. So I would argue, looking at what we just read, his one specific request has sort of two elements. One, that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. So now think for a moment, what does he mean by that? And you'll notice probably in many of your translations, if you have the NIV, ESV, uh, that spirit is capitalized there, sort of indicating that this is a reference to that which will come as a result of the working of the Holy Spirit. Because if these are already believers, which we've clarified they are, they already have the Holy Spirit. So Paul wouldn't pray that they would receive the Holy Spirit. They already have it. But what he is going to pray in this overarching request is that they would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, two interesting words. Wisdom can speak of that sense of insight, discernment. Uh, I think we want to couple that with insight and discernment and how to regulate your relationship with Christ on a daily basis. Just how to walk with God increasingly more and more. Revelation here is not referring to that thought of, well, receiving visions and dreams, but, but having the truth of God continually disclosed and made clear to you through the scriptures. So you have the first part of this one specific request is that the spirit of wisdom and revelation would be actively at work in your life as a Christian. But the second part that goes with that is that the eyes of your heart or understanding may be enlightened. Again, this thought that your, your mind, your affections uh, would be more and more absorbed and under the control of the work of the Spirit in your life because you are a follower of Jesus Christ. 
this word enlightened is very close to the word revelation in the sense it means to see openly, clearly. Uh, but what is interesting is the word enlightened here is in a perfect tense, which means Paul's referring back to something that has happened that has continuing results. In other words, you have already received the Spirit, so you are now not blinded to the gospel. You can read the scriptures, increasingly grasp them, but we're praying that that would continue to unfold more and more. Because you notice that he gives you in verse 17, why is he praying this? He's not praying it so the church would have more people in it. He's not praying it so it'll look good on his resume in case he needs to get another job. But you notice verse 17 at the end, he says, so that you may know him better. That, that you may know God in a richer, deeper, increasingly way. Uh, and now that word speaks of a precise knowledge. Not, not a partial, but, but that we would know God. A number of years ago, J.I. Packer wrote a book called Knowing God. And, and what he distinguished between is a problem that I think many times those of us who come to church uh, experience, there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. We don't want to equate just information about God with a personal, intimate knowledge of God. And Paul says, as we pray for one another in the Lord, here's our, our request for each other, that, that we would know God better by the spirit of wisdom and revelation that the eyes of our minds are understanding would, would be like sponges when it comes to the things of God. That, that we just find ourselves saying, I, I can't get enough. I, I want to read more. I want to study more. I want to talk about this more. So I said, if that's the one request, what else then makes up the rest of this prayer? Because verses 18, halfway through, through 23, are all still a part of the prayer. Well, I think where Paul goes next is out of that one request, he's going to unfold for us three areas in, in our lives and in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ where we should increasingly be comprehending more and more. In other words, what does it look like to say, well, you, you should know God better? So look closely at verse 18. Verse 18, he says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. So if you stop right there, here's the first area that he says we should increasingly be growing in, and that is that you would know the hope to which he has called you. Now, in this case, there's two different ways you can think of hope. Hope is confident assurance. But there's an objective hope, so our faith is in Christ. It's not in ourselves, it's in Christ. That's objective, outside of ourselves. We look forward to this blessed hope, which is the kingdom of God that's outside of ourselves. But in this case, Paul is referring to a subjective hope. In other words, a deep certainty and assurance that you have within you because of Jesus Christ. 
And so his prayer is, my, my brothers and sisters, that you would know the hope to which he has called you. Since you have your Bibles open to this passage, just look back at verse 14 of chapter 1, where he spoke of that and said, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. In other words, what Paul's saying, as you pray for one another, pray that you would know this hope, which is yours in Christ. And in a sense, you could say, this sort of gives an aspect to a, a past assurance. It, it's something that took place in the past. Yes, it is there, but it's almost as if Paul's kind of dividing these areas up, as you'll see, into a past aspect, a future aspect, and then he's going to conclude on a present aspect. So the first area is to know the hope to which he has called you. And I'm, I'm pretty certain all of us at some time in our walk with Christ, we get discouraged. Uh, we feel that not a lot is happening, maybe in our own lives. We may look and say, I really haven't seemed to conquer certain things that I still struggle with. Or you may look around you and, and be like, oh, I'm discouraged with what I see going on in this person's life or in this person's life. Paul says, well, maybe part of the reason we're discouraged is we're not praying like we should for one another. But then look at the next verse going on, verse 18, where we stopped that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Then he says, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, there's something in this that I don't think I caught the first time. He says that you would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Not, not the saints' glorious inheritance, but the glorious inheritance of the saints. Now, is this saying that, in a sense, since we have been bought in Christ, that we are an inheritance to God? Yeah. Well, what an interesting thought to take your attention now to the future. So you thought about the past, you're, you're the hope you've been called in. Now he says, I want you to look ahead. You, you were an inheritance to God. That would make sense when you read terms like we are his possession, his treasure, his, his prize. What a, what a picture to say to these Ephesian believers. You know, you may not feel that way right now, but this is the reality. This should encourage you how you pray for each other. That we would want each of us to be a, a worthy inheritance to God. So we've covered the past. He's covered the future. And now Paul comes to probably what would be a very pressing concern. What does this all mean for the present? How do we pray for one another in the present? Well, notice verses 19 through 23. He gives the largest kind of part of that area now and talks about we need to pray that we would all be knowing the incomparable power of God. 
Because isn't that what we often struggle with on a daily basis? That, that power of God that we need so desperately in our lives and in our thoughts. So look with me at verse 19, breaking this down. Uh, you notice in verse 19, he says, incomparable great power, which emphasizes above and beyond anything you can expect. It exceeds everything, which is interesting because when we look at Paul's second prayer in Ephesians 3, he will end that prayer by saying God's power is able to do more than we can ask or imagine. But in that same sentence in verse 19, Paul has a habit when he wants to emphasize something of just heaping words one upon another. So you notice the first line was incomparable great power. But then go down and he says, that power is the working of his mighty strength. He, he packs into that three words. First he says, power which emphasizes uh, an energy, and an inner working, a supernatural working by the power of Christ in us. But he's not done yet. He wants to even emphasize that power more. And he says, like the working. Now, working is the root for our word energy. So he's not just said, here's this incomparable power, this ability, this enabling that is yours in Christ. But that enabling is like an energizing. If you know Christ, you're, you're kind of spiritually, I guess, like the Energizer Bunny. I mean, you should be all hyped up and wanting to serve and love God. But he's still not done. He adds one more term, the working, energizing of his mighty strength. What a way to sort of say to them, this is what is yours in Christ. Not this is what could be yours this is what is yours in Christ. This is a present reality. The other things he's mentioned before, that, it, that inheritance we are to God, that's future. But this is the here and now. This is yours in Christ. But maybe to, again, booster our assurance, our reminder of this, you get to verses 20 through 23, and Paul says, let me talk about how that power has been displayed. Just in case you're reading this and you're thinking, I still, not, I still don't feel it, Paul. I still kind of want to believe this about God's present incomparable power in Christ, but I'm just having a hard time grasping this. Notice in verse 20, Paul says, it's that power that is evident in two ways. Christ's resurrection and Christ's exaltation. You want to see the power of God, what I'm talking about, that's yours in Christ? Just look at the resurrection. Christ being raised up from the dead by the power of God through his spirit. And Christ's exaltation. That he now has a name that is above every name. That he is at the Father's right hand reigning with him. What a display of God's power, a demonstration to say to us, Paul, what you've just said, you've backed up. And then you get to the very end of the prayer, verse 23, growing out of the power of Christ, there's resurrection and exaltation. Notice he says, 
which is his body, referring to the church from the previous verse, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. There you're back to present tense. He fills everything. He continues to fill, strengthen, and complete each one of us in Jesus Christ. In other words, enabling us to live up to and out of the privileges, the blessings that are ours even as we speak in Christ. Remember last week I mentioned the, the context of the city of Ephesus. It was known in one sense for its, its pursuit into uh, sorcery, magical arts, very demonic practices. It, it was known for that as a city. In a context like that, Paul wants to remind them those powers are nothing compared to the power of Christ. In a city that was used to talking about that, hearing about these dark powers. Paul elevates the power of Christ above and beyond that. And so now that we know the answer to two basic questions, why should I pray for the person sitting next to me, behind me, as a Christian? We know the answer to that. And if we know the answer now, how I should pray, zeroing in on taking these words and applying them, then it leaves only one question. Will you do it? Will you pray like this? Remember, it clearly is God's will that we do this. Let's go to the Lord doing exactly what we just said, praying. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we admit that we often do not pray like we should for one another. But by your grace and by our dependence on you, may we begin to change that. May you change that in us. May this prayer of Paul's be not just something we read on paper, but a prayer that changes us and changes those around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.